Welcome, welcome, everyone. I'm Joe Cook, and I'm glad to have you back here for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. This week, we're going to continue to look at the subject of leadership, although this week we're going to shift away from what makes for great leaders and change instead to look at what makes for failed leaders. So we are going to talk again with Bill Venezia, who is our guest on our first episode, if you happen to listen to that one. If you have not, please go back and download it and listen to it now. Please also listen to episode two, where we had Frank McGady talking about military leaders. But this week, we're going to look at failed leaders, the presidents who have not lived up to our expectation. Before we get into that, though, I want to give a couple audience shout outs. I said on the first episode, I want this podcast to be as interactive as possible. So I want to give a shout out to a couple of our listeners right now. First, we have a, another history teacher, actually, Christian Gonzalez, reached out with his thoughts on the most important leadership qualities for a president. And he said, a willingness to die for your country is certainly a good quality for presidents to have. I think that is certainly reflected in the military experience that you discussed. He's referring to my discussion with Bill Venezia on the first episode. And then he said, Lincoln and Teddy definitely had that. That's certainly right, Christian. Uh... Lincoln especially, I'm going to talk about here just for a moment, that Lincoln on his way to be inaugurated, we all know that Lincoln is going to end his presidency by being assassinated tragically at the start of his second term. But even on his way to be inaugurated for his first term, there were threats of assassination against Abraham Lincoln. And that hovered over his whole journey to Washington, D.C., But when he made a stop in Philadelphia, the original capital and the birthplace of American democracy, on his way to Washington, D.C. early in 1861, Lincoln gave a speech in front of Independence Hall in which he said that he would rather be assassinated than see the country fall apart. And I think what what Christian points out here is exactly that attitude. Lincoln didn't serve in the military. Well, he did, but only for a couple months during the Black Hawk War. And it was always always kind of a joke to him, his military service. But he showed right from the beginning of his presidency on his voyage to Washington that he would rather die than see the country suffer. And he holds that in common with all our presidents who have served in the military. And in their own way, I'm sure many of our other presidents who have that similar concern that the country is bigger than the man. The office is bigger than the man. And, and Lincoln embodied that, as did Teddy Roosevelt, as, as my fellow history uh, teacher Christian pointed out in his review, his, his answer to our podcast question. I also want to shout out, um, we got our first review on Apple Podcasts this past week. Uh, it came from a former student of mine, actually, Catherine, who's a student now at William & Mary, and I hope she's doing well down there. Catherine said, one episode in, and I absolutely can't wait for more. Mr. Cook is a wonderful and extremely skilled teacher, and I'm glad to be able to learn from him past high school. Uh, Thank you so much, Catherine. I I do miss teaching you and and your sister also and and all your fellow students down in North Carolina. I'm glad you're listening to the podcast. I hope you do continue to enjoy it and that this, this episode lives up to your expectations. So thank you again, Catherine. Uh, we're going to take a, a little break now for an ad, as always, and then we'll be back with Bill Venezia to talk about what goes wrong for some of our presidents in U.S. history. So stick around, everybody, and I'll see you back in about 30 seconds. 
let me tell you all about Anchor, because some things are just obvious, right? Like, we all know if you want the perfect cow to be the first one milked on an airplane in the year 1930, you turn to Elm Farm Ollie. No question about it. Well, if you want the perfect app to help you launch your own podcast, you turn to Anchor. Anchor has all the tools to help you easily record, edit, mix, and publish your podcast to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of your other favorite podcast platforms. So again... You want to milk a cow on an airplane in 1930? You turn to Elm Farm Ollie. You want to create your own podcast? You turn to Anchor. Okay, we're back here with Bill Venezia, a returning guest, our first returning guest here on the, uh, on the podcast, Weeks for Wigs. And today we're going to continue with our discussion from a couple episodes ago where we talked about what qualities make for a great, successful president. But today we're going to flip that on its head and talk about what qualities lead to the failures of a presidency. What do the, the bottom rung of the ladder of presidents have in common? Or even ones that we do admire, but this led to their downfall, a bit of a Shakespearean type thing. They have one character flaw that brings them down, and Nixon, for example, um, so who did good things, I think we can agree. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. But had that, that over, our overwhelming character flaw that's going to be his destruction. So that's going to be our focus today on Wigs for Wigs, is to try to get to the bottom of that question, what leads to a presidency failing because we've never elected somebody hoping for them to fail. We elect people, they have support because we think they're going to be a successful president. So what is it that leads to some of these people who have held that highest office in the land not succeeding, whereas others have done so? So um, I'm gonna ask Bill just to start off here. We have, again, the C-SPAN rankings of presidents up on the board here. We're the bottom five, I'll just read off. Are James Buchanan at the very bottom, the president who came right before Abraham Lincoln, who's pretty consistently been at the bottom of the ranking. Andrew Johnson, who came right after Abraham Lincoln. Franklin Pierce, who was right before James Buchanan. So there's a bit of a theme here, time period. Then making his debut on the rankings from C-SPAN is Donald Trump. And then William Henry Harrison, who I suppose his fault was that, well, he wasn't alive to be president, so hard to do anything good if you're dead. Um, where would you, if I would just ask you, even ignoring the, the C-SPAN rankings, who are some people that you would put out of your own you know, knowledge of history and, and recollections at the bottom of that list of, of presidents? Well, uh, I'm going to bypass the low-hanging fruit with James, <laughs> James Buchanan. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Buchanan yeah, in a I mean, little bit. B but. Buchanan, but if we back up to uh, his predecessor, Franklin Pierce, um, <laughs> You know, he's, uh, he had great oratorical skills, yep. he, but he, sadly, he was exceptionally incompetent during his presidency from 1853 to 1857. He liked to please everybody, he and did. it was a character flaw that, that would be his undoing in terms of his ineffectualness. He, it's ironic that the little giant, uh, <laughs> Stephen Douglas, bullied him and dominated him in basically having to uh, have him sign the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which basically allowed for 
slavery. Slavery to go in, where it was illegal the, before. Where it was illegal before in Nebraska and Kansas. Uh, you know, I, he had another character flaw, which obviously is not one wow. for a successful president. He drank. Yeah, I, I, I knew where you were going he, with that. He, um, he basically. Uh, a lot is made of Ulysses S. Grant drinking. Ulysses S. Right. Grant was. Maybe would we we maybe qualify him as an alcoholic today? Uh, perhaps, I would say the but he was more of a lightweight. Is what's been written about Ulysses S. Grant that he would have one drink and he'd be drunk. He'd have a glass of champagne and Which he'd be drunk. Is a classic sign of a drunk. But the truth of the matter is, he was a functional drunk. Right. Whereas yeah. Franklin Pierce was just yeah. off the rails yeah. all he, the time. He died of cirrhosis drinking. of the liver. And and he had reason. Uh, I don't know if you know the origin of Franklin Pierce when he came into office. Uh, the tragic story of him actually making his way to Washington D.C. Are you familiar no, with that? No, I'm not. I'm so, not so Franklin Pierce was the youngest president in U.S. history up until that time. There was a lot of hope, a lot of optimism. Here we have this young guy coming in. He was a war hero, although that's a little bit tainted also by drinking, um, where he fell off his horse once drunk in the middle of a battle in the Mexican War. But on his way to Washington D.C., he and his wife and their child, their son. We're making their way down from Vermont, where they lived. Um, New Hampshire, I should say, not Vermont. New Hampshire. And uh, the train they were on derailed. <laughs> it was a deadly accident. And their son, their only son, was decapitated and killed right in front of Franklin Pierce and his wife. Um, so that's how his presidency kicks off. He's on his way to Washington, D.C. He loses his only son. And shortly into his presidency, his vice president dies. Um, so there just seems to be tragedy all around Franklin Pierce early on in his presidency. And now I feel bad about uh, about my my uh, my withering. <laughs> well, he's a terrible president. We can't we can't president. get past that. But sadly, uh -oh. I mean, facing those life circumstances, we you know, obviously impacted him. You know, I guess we go from bad to worse. Uh, if you want to talk about James Buchanan, I mean, because we had a bad run there. Yeah, we did. Well, uh, let me say one more thing about Pierce, which is um, there's a term for people like Franklin Pierce, like James Buchanan also, who's going to have some similar characteristics there. These were northern guys who were always giving into the South, always trying to please everybody, like, Ms., like uh, Bill said here. They actually had a term for that at the time. They were called them doe faces. Um, that they were very moldable. They, they would do whatever it took to try to please whoever their audience was. And for the Democratic Party of that time, which both of them were Democrats, the South was who you needed to please if you wanted to get elected. The Republican Party was just emerging at that moment in history, clearly as a Northern Party. These Northern Democrats like Pierce, like Buchanan, wanted to make sure that the South didn't turn on them or support other Democrats. So they did whatever those Southern Democrats, Southern sympathizing Democrats wanted. Stephen Douglas, who you mentioned, another one from a Northern state, but always doing what the South wants. So fun 19th century vocabulary term there that, you know, they have a lot of names for things in the 19th century in politics. We have the era of mugwumps and stalwarts and things like that. A doe face, a Northerner always giving into the South. No, no real core set of beliefs to, to go back to what you said as a strength of a president that they're just doing whatever they think will please their base, their audience. And yeah, they definitely came up with the word, uh, you know, uh, uh, if Ricky Nelson in, uh, in Garden Party. If you can't please everyone, please yourself. Well, couldn't do that. Um, 
I was, I was hoping to skip ahead because I want to take a look at two presidents who had various success, but I think are linked in history. Okay. And they're not on the worst list there, which okay. is neither here nor there. But <laughs> I think these two men were very alike in their core beliefs, and they also had similar fatal flaws. Uh, and that's Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. I feel like Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon... Friendly with each other, too. Yes, uh, very much so. In fact, Clinton hired some advisors from Nixon's administration. Uh, you know, they, they were both centrists for the most part. They were a little on the conservative side of Clinton and his the Democratic wing of the party, the Blue Dog Democrats. Mm -hmm. The problem that they had, the fatal flaw, was their trouble with truth. Both of them <laughs> lied implicitly and, and yeah, their default was to lie. <laughs> was to lie, uh, and it's it's kind of sad because both achieved a lot during their presidencies. Nixon, foreign policy wise, uh, you know, I don't think economically he he had the impact that Clinton had on America's in, uh, uh, economy. But then again, presidents shouldn't get all of the blame or yeah, the credit. I think, I think presidents in general yes, are, are too attributed yes. for the, the economy Clinton, one way or the other. Clinton had the benefit of the dot-com boom, you know, yeah. which, <laughs> which he turned... Uh, which that know, busted right at the end of his presidency. He, so. he, he turned that budget <laughs> into a, a massive surplus by the time he left, <laughs> left office. But I think they also basically skirted the war many yeah. times. <laughs> and uh, Nixon, obviously, which was his downfall, uh, you know, so even though both were attorneys, both basically had a certain amount of disregard for the law, and basically. Well, I know uh, Clinton was disbarred by New York. I'm not yes, sure if, if Nixon was ever disbarred. But, no, he wasn't. Uh, and it was probably in his deal that he made with his vice president on the probably. way out. Uh, you know that that would happen. So I I I, I kind of think that they're cut from the same cloth, you know, obviously Republican and a Democrat, uh -huh. but in their core beliefs, I believe that they held a lot of the same things sacred uh, in terms of they were in the center for the most yeah. part. They yeah. were. I think people tend to forget how many, well, today we would classify as liberal things were done under Richard Nixon, uh, yeah. the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, Title yeah. IX. Um, and other other environmental things and other things that Richard Nixon did, opening up trade with China, which yes. was uh, not popular with his own party at the time. I, I, I also wanted to talk about the dark side of, of JFK. And, let, me, and, let me say one last thing about sure. Nixon and Clinton first, and then we can move on to JFK, which is just a book recommendation. That's something I want to throw out there throughout this podcast. If, if one comes to us, and Bill, if you ever have a book that you want to recommend to our readers, certainly throw it out there. But there is a superb book, it came out just a few years ago, called, uh, what is the title of that book? The President's Club. The President's Club is the title of the book. And it's about relationships between presidents in the 20th century, going back to Herbert Hoover and Harry Truman, their relationship. And it, one of the chapters is specifically about the relationship between Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, their friendship, that Clinton frequently called Nixon for advice while he was president about foreign policy especially, but other matters also. Um, interestingly, Clinton did not want to call the other Democrat that he had to call on at that time, which was Jimmy Carter. Uh, Clinton was not a big fan of Carter, the book lays out, and was much more prone to call Richard Nixon and seek out his advice on things. 
So just an interesting connection there, again, between those two guys with that similar flaw of maybe an uncomfortable relationship with the truth uh, throughout their well, careers. It's interesting, too, that uh, Nixon and JFK came into Congress at the same time. Post-war America. Yes, they were both they, World War II veterans, yes. Navy veterans. They were came also into the Congress at the same time. Two famous cold warriors of right. the 1950s when they hit the Senate. Uh, JFK, we talked about his admirable qualities in the last podcast, but the, the, the striking thing, which was because we live in a different time, and everything, you know, if you burp, somebody will know somewhere <laughs> in the world. Uh, but JFK had a dark side to him, and I'll, I'll give you a book that uh, explains yeah, it pretty well. He, he had this need for uh, sexual gratification. He did, if I don't have sex every day, I get a headache, he yeah. once said. You know, and, and the sad part of it was that when you think about it, what he did was he compromised in a, in a very, very tense time during uh, <laughs> the, the Cold War in the 60s, i.e. The, the, uh, the October of 1962. He was continually shuffling uh, women in and out of the White House. And he was, and I he, think a couple of them were even spies. I don't know yes, if that's where you were going what, with this. What, yes, I mean, he actually compromised national security <laughs> with regard to his not being able to control that. <laughs> I read a great book called J John F. Kennedy, Elusive Hero by Chris Matthews, hmm. late of MSNBC. Chris Matthews of MSNBC. Yes. And, he of uh, Zell Miller challenging to a duel. He, <laughs> yes. He, um, he basically states that JFK was extremely sickly as a he child, was. spent a lot of time in the hospital, and he had a mother who was relatively cold to him. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Kennedy family, the, the Sky, and especially Joe Kennedy Sr., saw Joe Kennedy Jr. as the heir to the political yeah. throne yeah. of FDR. Yeah, I think and people tend to forget about Joe Kennedy yes. Jr. because he does die in World in War II. World War II. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, Which bumps everybody up once a slot in the father's uh, Jack, plans. Jack spending all that time in the hospital as a kid for various illnesses, his mother never visited him. He never felt the warmth of his mother, and he was dominated by his father. Hmm. And I guess it's learned behavior. His father was a serial philanderer. Oh, yeah. And uh, I do believe that that well, I think Marlena Dietrich, they actually shared in common that yeah. <laughs> allegedly they both had. I mean, she was a longtime mistress of... Joe Kennedy, the father, yep. but allegedly also had an affair with at least one little fling with John F. Kennedy. So sex was just something to have, and it was learned yeah. behavior <laughs> from, from dad, but he never was able, to, people will tell you what a great order he was, and he was, he was a great speaker. He never got close to anyone. Yeah. He never really did. He never had that intimacy with other people. And I, I found it fascinating. Even with Jackie. Uh, yeah, even, even with, with Jackie. <laughs> seemingly, you know, and, and God knows that t times make the president and times make the man, circumstances. Uh, toward the end of his life, he did get a little closer to his wife and yeah. actually promised <laughs> her that, that this was over. Now, his wife, being a, a perfect Victorian wife, well, yeah. understood <laughs> because her own father, Blackjack yeah. Bouvier, <laughs> was also a philanderer and had left. Her mother. Yeah, there is a famous story of Jackie Kennedy, well, for one, that Marilyn Monroe actually called the White House at least on one occasion and told Jackie Kennedy that she was planning to replace her, yeah. um, but also that Jackie Kennedy was taking some foreign journalists, French journalists, and Jackie spoke fluent French, one of the things that was charming about her, but bringing them around the White House came to this pair of White House uh, secretaries, 
I, I can't recall their name, they were known as Fiddle and Faddle around the office, and said in French to the French reporters, these are the two women that are sleeping with my husband. Um, that was how she introduced yeah, these was, two secretaries. It, to. It, it was known. So this was the, not a secret. <laughs> no, was, it was not a secret. But fortunately, you know, it was, it was a different time with regard yeah. to the press. You know, it, it was a time when okay, uh, the president is not going to be speaking to you today because of, of a cold. Yeah, because he has uh, a cold. Yeah, and that's what the excuse was for the missile crisis. Right. Um, Joe, I, I wanted to move on because you referenced uh, Clinton's. Uh, disregarded Jimmy Carter. I think his fatal flaw was that he was totally governed by his Georgia Mafia inner circle. If you didn't sound like Hamilton Jordan, yep. you know, you basically wouldn't listen to you. Yeah. And, and, and the other fatal flaw... If he didn't sound like his own voice in his own head, he wouldn't listen to you. No. He, he was very much a person who thought he knew best he about did. everything. And he um. micromanaged the presidency. He yeah. didn't delegate enough Consequently, he couldn't have good relations with the Congress. Look, not only did he micromanage the actual responsibilities of the presidency, he was managing personally, like, the schedule of the White House tennis courts. Yeah. Um, that Which, he wanted to control that. I when a president is spending time worrying about who's on the tennis courts between 1 and 2 o'clock, that's not the responsibility of a president. I don't remember that part of the Constitution. Um, no, no. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting, too. I mean... He doesn't make the, uh, the bottom list, but I think a better man than a president. And well, he, he makes the top of the list of ex-presidents. Ex-presidents <laughs> and what, he, what his legacy is as an ex-president. In terms of Habitat for Humanity and, oh, and, and just other peace work with the Middle East. And, yeah, you know, um, it's kind of ironic <laughs> that we had an ex-president who was concerned about fair elections in other countries <laughs> and went as a as a somebody who would monitor them. Yeah, you know, well, and that was something that Clinton wasn't happy about either, but that's talked about in the book that I referenced. That, that yeah. He was not asked to go down to, I think it was Nicaragua, um, one no. year to monitor the election. Clinton had his own team of people and was very unhappy that Jimmy Carter was stepping in and well, on his could, own initiative going down there and bringing attention. more comfortable with Republicans, i.e. Nixon and Herbert Walker Bush, you know, in his later years, look, look at the fundraising they did, yeah. you know, yeah. for the Clinton Foundation and for <laughs> worldwide uh, feeding people. They did, a, he did some, some good things. But, yeah, maybe, uh, one, maybe one day we'll talk about what makes a great ex-president, because yeah, uh, we absolutely. could have a good episode about that, I think, especially yeah. with the more modern... Uh, more recent since Carter has kind of set the mold of what an ex-president can be. Um, going back to uh, just this, uh, that inability to speak the truth, I have to throw Warren Harding in there also. Okay. Uh, similarly had that problem with not only not being able to tell the truth, but also the philandering and uh, having affairs. It was recently proven that he did in fact father a child in an affair. That was always a question about whether that was made up or not. I'm just looking at the bottom of the list here. A lot of these are people, again, I'm looking at the C-SPAN list, which you can look up online. They do this every few years. But a lot of the bottom of the list are those mid-1800s presidents that just didn't do a heck of a lot. Um, but what's another president that we talked about um, who maybe didn't always live up to what we would like? Let's talk about Dwight Eisenhower. You know, we talked about the dark side of John F. Kennedy, who was one of the ones you focused on the last time you were here. How about Dwight Eisenhower, who I think both of us agree is one of the great presidents in history. I don't know if I'll maybe you in, do disagree I'll with that. In, I'll put him in the, in the top, top 10. ten. Yeah, yeah. okay. Absolutely. So that he does spectacular things and, and has obviously his positive characteristics. 
his credibility, his integrity that people perceive. He's a good manager of, of people and personnel, I think. But tell us a little bit about the dark side of well, Dwight a, Eisenhower, because I know that's something that you are very interested in. Is the well, is mm-hmm. basically regarding his foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, uh, he was a cold warrior to a certain degree, but uh, there was a darker side with regard to the covert actions the United States was involved in that he was well aware of. And they're born out of something in, that he talked against in his last, um, his last farewell, address. farewell yeah. address, and that's the, the industrial military complex. <laughs> So it's interesting that he called it the industrial military complex, and somewhere over time we, we flipped that and changed yeah. it to the military industrial. Yes. Because we just decided it sounded better. I don't know I what, mean, the, he what the logic was there. Seated this authority to his Secretary of State, John Forster Dulles, and the newly formed CIA, who was at the time during the 50s, was headed by Alan Dulles. Yeah. And <laughs> we got involved. Yeah, so the Secretary of State and the Head of the CIA were brothers. Um. Yes. In fact, that's the name of an excellent book <laughs> called The Brothers, Tracing American Foreign Policy, all the way back to 1919, the Treaty of Versailles, up through the 19, early 1960s. And it's about the impact of John Forster Dulles and Alan Dulles, who, by the way, they were part of the industrial complex with regard to the United Fruit Company. I was going to bring and, up the United Fruit Company, and, which today is known as Chiquita Bananas. Yeah. Uh, Chiquita Fruit, that, that is the same company that if you ever are reading an old history book or anything and hear about the United Fruit Company, this big giant conglomerate uh, of tropical fruits, that is Chiquita today. So uh, it, They also were part of a, a, a very big uh, international law firm called Sullivan and Krumholz. Hmm. And this law firm, well, their political views were born out of Woodrow Wilson's view of the world in 1919. Ironically, both of them accompanied him to the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. The connection was Princeton University. Right. Uh, but Eisenhower put a smiley face on everything. And he, he was this benign grandfatherly figure who presided over a prosperous post-war economy. <laughs> he built our highway system. Yeah. Uh, who didn't like Ike? Everybody exactly. did. Everybody did. I mean, and obviously... Well, he also, he liked the covert stuff because it was cost-saving. Yeah. That helped uh, bring costs down instead of having a large military that you have to send into, say, a Nicaragua or an Iran um, to bring about the changes that we would have liked with elections there with Arbenz and... Uh, who was the Iranian that was kicked out. I can't think of his name I off the top think of my of his, head. His um, name. To bring in the Shah, but uh, it was much cheaper to have this little covert operation that would take care of that far away and, and leave the U.S.'s hands fairly clean. Uh, and basically, hands off. I mean, the, the seeds, the root of the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979 was because that we had meddled in their, their domestic yeah. affairs. We basically used our covert activities with. Uh, 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 Western sympathizers in Iran uh, when the Iranian people rejected the Shah and he was deported from the country, he fled the country. The duly democratic leader of the country was subject to 
uh, a covert activity that would accuse him from being a communist, would accuse him from taking dictatorial powers. And this was the first democratically elected leader in the history of Iran. You know, so, I mean, yeah. we, we decided, we, we basically pinned our hopes on that autocrat, uh, yeah. Pahlavi, the family of Pahlavi, and helped to reinstate uh, the Shah, which, who had a brutal, a brutal secret police who cracked down on dissidents, threw them all in jail. Not and look, like, that, that was a U.S. policy uh, that we would support dictators who were friendly with us, going back at least sure. to William Howard Taft is associated with this concept of what's known as dollar diplomacy in, in history. Um, I'm thinking specifically of people like Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic, the, yes. who for many years, 30 years, was supported by the United States because he did business with the U.S. in return for kickbacks and guarantees of protection. Then, after we kind of uh, took a step back from him because of his massacre of Haitians, which is one of the really unknown genocides of the 20th century um, and FDR brought in what he called his good neighbor policy where we were going to try to not be so interfering in the Caribbean well Trujillo lashed out started doing other things we didn't like and ultimately what happens to Trujillo he gets killed by people in his military backed up by the CIA so the US for a long time was the backer of Trujillo and then when he's not useful to us anymore the CIA goes in and helps to kill him that's not a unique story to the Dominican Republic, but, but it is part of this dark part of American foreign policy. Which was never, the, 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 the blood of history was never splashed on, on Ike. And uh, it, no. it was, but it did, the chickens did come home to roost uh, in Cuba uh, because of our acceptance and our support of Batista, who was actually stealing our aid. Batista's another one, you, yeah. You know, uh, and uh, it, it all started with Ike and that, that noblesse oblige to a certain degree, or he gave specific instructions that this was fine to do this, you know, because both of the Dulles brothers would keep, you know, would keep him in the loop to all of this. He yeah. sanctioned these things, but there was hands off. I mean, chickens off, came right? home to roost in, in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. You know, we actually forced uh, the the heirs of um, the Cuban Revolution, uh, think about this, it went from Marte to, to Castro, we actually almost, because of our actions, made that marriage between the Soviet Union and Castro. Oh, almost directly, yeah, yeah it was I mean, the result of our actions. Because yeah, Castro was able to go to Khrushchev and say, look, they're trying to get rid of me. And, you and, want communism all over the world, right? This permanent revolution, so... You want to protect me in, in Cuba, I need protection. Send, send missiles or something. The sad, sad part of a bit is that John Foster Dulles uh, uh, died shortly after he resigned as Secretary yeah. of State. He died of Alzheimer's. And um, I think his brother suffered from that later on, too. Mm -hmm. But his brother had such a hand in the Cuban policy with the CIA, which led to uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the Bay of Pigs debacle. Kennedy was briefed on it as he was the incoming president. He, his first, first thing to Alan Dulles, who briefed him on this plan, was will American troops and air power be needed to support right. this? And Dulles human? said no. Dulles and said then when no. it actually happened, they came begging for air power, and Kennedy said no. And, uh, when the poop hit the fan, you know, yeah. and he felt tremendously just, just another link there, talking about the Bay of Pigs. Of course, one of the other planners of the Bay of Pigs were the CIA, 
was uh, E. Howard Hunt, yes. who later on was a trusted operative for Richard Nixon <laughs> and caught up in the whole Watergate thing so and helped lead directly to the White House with the investigation of Nixon. And if you um, believe so another link between the Kennedy administration and the, the Nixon administration. And, and if you believe in conspiracies, there are many pictures of a, a man who looks exactly like E. Howard Hunt uh, in Dallas on November 22nd, Yeah, I've seen that also. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, anyway. Uh, I have one, one last one here, real quick. If it's just, you know, we've talked about personality failures and all. Some presidents just simply wind up being bad, incompetent <laughs> administrators. They just, they don't have that force of will, that vision or anything. They, they're just functionaries who, through moving up in the party or whatever, ultimately are elected and they don't know what to do as president. I think that brings us back to James Buchanan, the bottom of the list. And summarized perfectly by one of James Buchanan's own speeches when the secession crisis started in 1860 after, you know, when Buchanan is literally just waiting, counting down the days to leave the White House, which is never a good mindset for a leader to have. He said, well, the southern states do not have the right to secede, but the federal government has no right to stop them if they choose to do so. And that's a really baffling statement for a president to say. You can't do it unless you really want to, because then we won't punish you. Uh, you know, we're both educators. Imagine that's your policy with students. You say, you're not allowed to do something, but I'm not going to punish you if, if you do it. Um, it doesn't work in the classroom. It doesn't work as president. It doesn't work in any organization. And yes. that was James Buchanan. So. You know, it's funny. He, he did that under the guise of supporting the Supreme Court, which he <laughs> thought that uh, slavery was, was allowable because it was constitutionally legitimate. Yeah. And, and you know, that was... Well, he actually that, pressured the Supreme Court to... He, he did. That was one time when he actually got involved, was to pressure the Supreme Court to try to have a unanimous ruling on Dred Scott, one of the worst decisions in the history of the Supreme Court. And it was not unanimous. One judge did vote uh, against in dissent in that case, but where the Supreme Court said black people have no rights that white people are ever bound to respect and slavery is legal everywhere. Isn't, um, isn't that ironic? We're sitting in a Catholic institution in Jersey City and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger P. Taney, was a Catholic, a practicing yeah. Catholic from Maryland. Problematic thing there. Yeah, and um, it's, it's kind of sad that he was the author of this. Uh, there's a major effort right now in yeah. Philadelphia to rename Taney Street, which is named after Justice Taney. Yeah. Um, one of my former classmates at Gettysburg, who might be listening to this, is involved in this. So shout out to Leo Baccaro, who's a teacher down at St. Joe's Prep, another Catholic school down in Philadelphia, um, trying yeah. to remove this, this uh, Shameful Catholic from American history. Joe, you want to end up on Buchanan. I just wanted to touch base. It's easy to pick on Buchanan. It, so that's it why is. I'm bringing one back that's Buchanan. not on the list that uh, from my adopted state of Vermont, Calvin Coolidge. Mm, Calvin Coolidge. I mean, Calvin Coolidge basically was the most hands-off president <laughs> except... My fellow Fourth of July baby, Calvin Coolidge. Well, uh. He uh, he basically, I think he's quoted as saying, the business of America is business. His business. He mm. was the most laissez-faire president, <laughs> except when... Uh, well, he, he also just never talked about anything. No. Alice Roosevelt said you could distinguish him from the furniture only when he moved. <laughs> she was, she was and Dorothy a, Parker, when he died, said, how could they tell? How could they tell? It's <laughs> oh. a great quote. But uh, he, the only demonstrative act which was horrible, that he participated in. Uh, Wilson had signed a, a, 
a, an agreement that anybody who fought in the First World War would be subject to getting a federal bonus. Right. Because you know, more than a million men served in World War I in Europe uh, with the American Expeditionary Forces. Yep. So when it came time for the, to pay these men, they weren't paid. Harding gave them no, no uh, uh, you know, he didn't basically yeah. honor that. And when he died, Coolidge, Coolidge went so far when they established a, a, uh, a squatter's camp in Washington, D.C. to protest to get these bonuses that they were promised as veterans. He sigged the cavalry on him, yeah, destroyed this, this it. This spills over into Hoover's yeah. presidency, too. And Absolutely. It's actually Douglas MacArthur, who was the chief of staff of the army at the time. Yes, great cavalry who, man. You who know? ordered them to clear out these people. And he burned and them down. And poor Dwight Eisenhower, again, there's all these connections here, yeah. was a, a, uh, an aide to General MacArthur at that time and wrote later that he was just sickened by this callous disregard for the people that he saw in General MacArthur and the other leadership well, at you, that time. Well, if you were an American in the, in the early 1920s, you know, business ruled the roost. It was, it yeah. was management. I mean, this is the roaring longer. 20s. I mean, it's yes. everything about the business. The economy was going full, full blast. Uh, sadly, uh, not only did uh, Harding, Coolidge, uh, uh, and uh, Herbert Hoover uh, preside, but they preside to the detriment and probably by some economic policies favoring business, just had this bubble explode. Well, and it's the idea also that the economy is the most important thing that yeah. we've, we've heard from some people the last few years also during this whole COVID mess that we've been through, that I think people would be accepting of, of you know, old people dying if we get the economy up and running again and the, and the <laughs> stock market to be high. <laughs> Uh, we heard that from advisors to the president in recent years. That's the, Absolutely. Uh, that's a very 1920s, roaring 20s, let's get the economy going no matter what. The business of America is business attitude that we've uh, seen that streak uh, through American history. Very, very ironic that one of the former president's advisors told him in a meeting, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm semi-quoting, uh -huh. let's, let's take the doctors away from the narrative. We create the narrative yeah. <laughs> of how we proceed with regard to the pandemic. And uh, this is a person who had no, no history of governance at all and advising the former president. All right, so your bottom five. Let's finish this up with a nice uh, recap. Who's your bottom five U.S. presidents? Because I disagree with the C-SPAN, at least William Henry Harrison. How do you put him at the bottom? He didn't do anything. He died. You have to give him. You can't a even have him on a ranking. You gotta give him. The a best part is that he's actually ahead of people. That just by dying, he he at least did no harm. Whereas the other four behind him actively harmed the country. I guess it's the only thing that you can assume from that. Well, I I, uh, I think that Buchanan is aptly placed. Yeah, I, I, I don't think anybody anytime soon is replacing no. James Buchanan at no, the very I bottom. I think that uh, Warren Harding, although you might have to give him an incomplete, but don't forget. He had a full two years before he died. He I, I think we can we can fairly judge and him. And basically um, there was Teapot Dome. Yeah, where he was where scandal after scandal. Yes. I mean, this is prohibition and they're drinking in the White House. Yep. Um, yep. Albert uh, Fall is, is going to jail. His attorney general is taking bribes, Harry Doherty. Um, it's the Ohio gang just taking bribes from anybody. Well, the best thing I think you could say about Harding. I agree. I would put Harding in my bottom five, too. He, he looked like a president. He did. <laughs> <laughs>
it looked like what people, and basically at the time. Well, so far we're in Ohio agreement. Was, I have Buchanan well, and Harding. Ohio was the cradle of president. It was. You know? I have Buchanan and Harding. I also have Andrew Johnson, who we didn't yeah. talk at all Franklin about here. Pierce, but nobody ever intended Andrew Johnson to be president to begin with. No. That's why I didn't go into Andrew Johnson here. He is an accidental president. So I'm going to let you name, you know, the, the, to round out the bottom five. Oh, I, well, I, yeah. I definitely have um, those three. Okay. Uh, I would you agree on Pierce. I agree on Pierce okay. also. Uh, so we have uh, with Buchanan, Kansas, Nebraska. Andrew there's Johnson. no way to, to fairly uh, to give Pierce any credit. And um, we have Harding. My last one would probably be. And I well. Actually, even though he's another accidental president, I'm going to put John Tyler in my bottom five. Okay, I, um, I could live with that. I think the, the dust of his John Tyler's so bad, he's kicked out of his party and has no party by the end of his presidency. He gets elected as a Whig and then betrays everything the Whig party stood for and is kicked out. So I, 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 I'll agree with that. I, I think that the dust of history hasn't settled with regard to the former president. I would be tempted to put yeah. Hoover. We talked about, you know, yeah, who, the, the, you the, know, the bonus I, army. But I actually feel like Hoover did. I, I, I think Hoover gets a bad rap, actually. That another. He's an honest person, at least, yes. who's trying his best and. I, th I don't think anybody would have had a solution for the Great Depression when it hits in 1929. An another man who served his legacy well. By Very well. An excellent ex-president. Yep. Did a lot of humanitarian, uh, work. humanitarian yeah. work. And here's a fun fact to know and tell. Uh, Carmela Venezia, my mother, hmm. was uh, an assistant editor for Collier's Publishing Company. And uh, she co-edited. She had uh, she'd met Herbert Hoover, hmm. uh, and Collier's published his memoirs uh, in the early 1950s. And she said he was a gentleman. He was a nice man. So Millie Venezia gave uh, gave him a, a little bit of a boost. I think hopefully that keeps him out of the bottom five. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that there can be some good things said about him, like Jimmy Carter. Good. Excellent. Uh, any last thoughts, Bill? I mean, I think we this was a pretty good one. We went a little bit longer today than, yeah, than the last I, time. Joe, <laughs> always a pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed it. What do you think for our next book? topic here? Uh, I, Whenever we get together next to I don't know. Georgia. I'm going to have to think about that. You know, uh, I think this was a great topic. Maybe we should do ex-presidencies. We, we talked a little bit about that. Um, models of ex-presidencies. I don't know. We'll think about that a little bit. But I hope, uh, audience, that you're all enjoying. Again, please subscribe, download, rate, and review us wherever you're getting your podcast, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, where this is available. And please also reach out to us. There's an option to send voice messages that we can include in a future episode and respond to. Or you can reach out to us at Wigs for Wigs, the name of this podcast, Wigs for Wigs, at gmail.com with any thoughts that you have about what is it that makes a president fail. Um, so, Bill, any, any last little thing here? Sign no, off to the audience. I'm looking forward to the next one, Joe, and uh, uh, I guess we'll be signing off. Yeah, hopefully we don't have any more really bad presidents in our near future to add to this list. So take care, everybody, and I hope to see you back for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. <laughs>